Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. Hello and welcome to today's episode with my guest, Bo Sanders. This is a super fun conversation, especially if you, like me, grew up in the church and particularly grew up in a church with lots of rules, lots of rights and wrongs, um, and now have emerged into an adulthood wondering if that was it. Uh, is that all that there was there uh, to be offered? This conversation with Bo. Um, he's uh, currently a pastor at Vermont Hills UMC up in Portland, Oregon, and they are trying to do church a little bit differently. They're trying to host a conversational space. They're trying to become a spiritual oasis for people who are asking these big, gnarly questions that don't have any clear answers. And boy, do we have fun in this conversation. We talk about modified theology. We talk about the surplus of meaning. We talk about our own personal, quote unquote, allergies to our E words like re- imagine and reform. Uh, and we talk about earth awareness and what does it mean to move information from our head to our feet and get connected to the land. We talk about healing springs and we do all of that in the first 30 minutes of this conversation. And it only gets better from there. And I'll just drop a little thing because man, by the end of it, we're talking about critical race theory and it's, it's, it's just so much fun. So buckle up, jump in, we get deep and gnarly and some pretty heady stuff here. Um, but then, of course, we pull it all out of our heads down into our feet and we connect it to the earth. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with myself and Bo Sanders. So there's kind of a, a few different things that I'm super excited to pick your brain on. Um, and really what I'm interested in is because in, in your podcast, Piecing It All Together and in your YouTube, you talk a lot about the theories and the mm -hmm. ideas, which are fantastic, mm -hmm. incredible knowledge. And I'm interested in Bo's story, mm -hmm. how you moved from wherever you were as a child mm -hmm. into the space you are now. And some of those maybe two or three really kind of formative moments that helped unlock some things and gave you permission mm -hmm. to become the person you are, um, but to start there, let's, I, I kind of want to start in today and then work our way backwards. Oh, okay. So, so let, let's, can, can we talk a little bit about the ABCs of Reformed theology? What is that? Why did you start it? And then of course, let's backtrack into the story about how you even came to that as a thing. Okay. I know that we live in a very polarized time where there's a, a terrible habit where that we have picked, many of us have picked up, where we discount people who see things differently from us. Mm, we discount yeah. them with easy dismissals. Mm. And where we don't even have to really engage new information because we've gotten good at either explaining away or um, easily discounting them in ways that mean we don't really have to take their insights or perspective seriously. And so I wanted to do something a little bit different, which is 
I bought into this thing called the surplus of meaning and from Paul Ricoeur. And one of the things I have found is very helpful to people is that I don't present something as either here's why this perspective or this tradition is dangerous or wrong. And I don't always champion a perspective necessarily, um, but that I'll say, like, for instance, in atonement, here's the five major historical ways of viewing. We just passed Easter. What happened, you know, mm-hmm. on the cross in, in, in all of the events surrounding that. And then sort of here's a, a newer 20th century way of interpreting that. Here's the strengths and weaknesses of them. And maybe here's where I land on it. But to try and appreciate historically how things have evolved, why they've emerged in the era that they have, what's their background, what's their agenda, and just try and uh, help people see that. Uh, It got really good feedback. Not only did lots of people read or listen to or watch uh, the videos or the podcasts or the PDFs uh, that I put out on the blog, but the amount of feedback that I got in emails and direct messages and, and uh, other things, uh, comments, let me know that this is something people really uh, like to talk about. So I become a pastor in Portland here. Uh, I was a professor for a year, and then I became a pastor here in a local church. And so I thought it'd be fun just to go through this with my people. So I sort of modified it from teaching it to maybe first year seminary students was my original audience. And I modified it for my congregation. So that was the first round of modified theology. Modified theology. There you go. And sort of the, the glitch or the gimmick was that all theology is modified theology. In fact, the only problematic theology is theology that doesn't know that it's modified and thinks that it's wrong to modify. Mm. And when theology believes that it is both timeless and universal, so placeless, it becomes problematic. It, it begins to harden or crystallize or concretize or however you want to talk about that in ways that become unliving. So it's no longer a living tradition. And it begins to calcify and fossilize. So uh, the, the, the sort of the, the proposal or the promise the opportunity was the invitation was to modify it as we went. And so we would read the PDF together and then I would modify it and then present it to them in real time. And then they would give me the feedback and we would sort of crowdsource and modify it as we went. It was a really good exercise. So we did two letters mm. per week. It was a 13-week learning cohort. And it was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. Awesome. Okay, so let's just take one as an example. And then, and then let's take a little journey from like young childhood mm-hmm. to this particular. So let, let's pick the word of God, right? So I think W is for the word of God. Let's pick that yeah. one, right? Let's go there. The word of God and the about, Western quad. Ex- oh man, such so, so good. 
Um, so, so without, without spoiling the content you've got on YouTube, cause everyone should just go there and listen to it. It's fantastic. Let's just, let, let, let's just ask the question this way. Did you grow up being taught that particular lens about the word of God that you're simply now repeating into the world? Or were you taught something very different as a child and you had to go through a process to get to a place where you actually see the word of God, the way that you talk about it on YouTube? Oh my goodness. No one's ever asking about this. This is so interesting. So here's, here's why a good question can even lead to a better response. My father is a very interesting character. So he uh, became a Christian after uh, a near death experience. Uh, He was a dairy farmer he came to Christ. He got called to ministry, my mom and, and my dad, and they ended up becoming um, pastors in the, the free Methodist, which is the more evangelical version of Methodism. And um, so that's why, you know, we left Ohio. That's where I was born. And then we went to Toccoa Falls, Georgia, to, for, for them to go to Bible college. We, then they got employed in Chicago. So I grew up outside Chicago. And then this is where it gets interesting. My dad, you know, got a master of divinity or whatever. And then he was working on a doctorate in um, church history. So my dad has a knowledge of church history. So I grew up in this interesting place where let's say I would go to youth group or we would watch one of those Christian movies you could buy at like the Christian bookstore. So there was one version of Christianity, which is like what has become evangelicalism and what everyone knows is like, right? That, that stream of the American evangelicalism where yes, the word of God was the Bible and the Bible was the word of God, right? They were synonymous. Yeah. Oh, I remember seeing those songs. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But because my dad also had uh, an education in church history he, I don't think he was in, I don't know that he was intentionally trying to undermine that, but I think he was trying to fill out our understanding. Mm. And we were also Billy Graham style Christians. Like we, we do evangelism. We learn to share our faith, you know, the, with people. And, but we also had a softer side, which is that we were very Jesus centric. And mm. so when scripture you know, in the Christian New Testament calls Jesus the word of God. You know, we took that really seriously, that Jesus is how God speaks to the world. So I don't know that it was ever presented theologically in like a coherent way. It was just, I knew that when most people said the word of God, they meant the Bible. But then when we said it, we meant Christ. Hmm. And So it just was like, okay, well, so you can mean two things by that. But then also you have stories in the Hebrew scriptures where God speaks, speaks. And that's also the word of the Lord, right? So like you've right there, you've got three just right off the bat. You're like, okay, so that, that thing can mean a bunch of different stuff. So it's this speaking voice of God in some way, Jesus is the message of God. But then when that's written down, that becomes a record of that. And that also is the word of God. And right. And, but then when you declare that, if you preach, cause my dad's a preacher, that's also the word of God. So now we've got four. Mm-hmm. So you just see the layering of this incredible, you know, file or bucket that's being packed mm-hmm. with meaning. Yeah. 
and uh, which is all very beautiful. I think that all of it has merit. It's when somebody tries to say, no, only one of those is the word of God. Mm. And then all those other things aren't. That's where, you know, the conversation. It suddenly becomes sharpened into a weapon. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Or a, a cut, really cut out enough and you get a sharp little blade. A blunt there. instrument. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, that's just a perfect example of how without really knowing it or, or, understanding that that I was participating in this surplus of meaning, just sort of having a mental file folder that said, well, okay, but that word, you know, or phrase can be used different ways. And then you just realize like, all right, well, you have to sort of understand how the person's using it to really get what they're meaning. So even in just my formative experiences, just understanding that not everybody uses the same words and phrases the same way, and that there's some artful or generous or patient um, work needed to, to try and understand. Well, then when you become a theological or a spiritual a person on a journey, mm-hmm then, you know, there's the opportunity to become a translator because you understand that people who live on a farm are very land-based. And then you meet people who have come by sea and they're taking the fruits of that, but they're taking it somewhere else in exchange, right? And that sailors have not only a different skill set and a different lifestyle, but they also have a different value system. So mm. rain and wind mean something a little different to sailors than they do to farmers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to help those two different communities understand sort of where the other is coming from and how the other is using those phrases was a really good experience for me as I explored and migrated in, on my spiritual journey. And I became mm. sort of a translator. Well, hmm. the longer that journey went on, then the more communities I was translating for. And hmm. so in, in doing that, when you're not just an either or translator, but you're a right. multilingual translator in a sense, you know, you have to hold a lot of different perspectives or possibilities in your head at any given point. And I know that, you know, you're multicultural with your experience and right. have been a translator. And, uh, and and so is that is that what you describe as the surplus of meaning is this capacity to hold multiples in once? Or is it even taking a step behind that and saying, yes, I hold multiples, but I understand that there is surplus even beyond my vision that exists in the world that I haven't yet mm-hmm. held. Yes. It, once you get three or four the either or right or wrong us or them in or out the whole binary system starts to fall yeah. apart pile of toxic trash anyway. yeah well <laughs> it is you know what it is it is a deadly dualism there is no mm. way around it and um no matter where you think it comes from i mean some people go all the way back to like greek philosophy as sort of its origin i think that for those of us who speak english and have white skin that there's definitely 
some blame to fall both in the enlightenment and in uh, the legacy of Descartes, um, who, mm. by the way, I think originally was doing a fantastic thing, but, you know, as, as happens, uh, it has become something quite detrimental in its legacy. Mm. Um, but that dualism is quite limiting. And once you, but here's the thing, once you get three or four, then you start to be suspicious that there are four or five and, and I really do understand, I don't believe in the, the slippery slope, but I get why people do. Because they sure. think if you open the door to three, pretty soon you have seven. <laughs> and they're not entirely wrong. They're not wrong at all. Yeah, they're exactly right. Yes, because <laughs> let's just say, you know, there are at least seven perspectives on almost everything. Yep. And so if you just use that as your starting point and you've only got three perspectives, you'd say, um, like, I'm hungry and I want to cut this pie in three, three pieces. But there's a possibility four more people are going to show up to camp after this. So maybe we shouldn't only cut it in three pieces. Like there's a humility or a, a yeah. patience that's required to say, I know I don't have all the information. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to tie this thing up yet because I mm. think we might have to get in here again and add some material. Mm. So I'm not going to cinch the strap down quite yet. We'll see. And I think that's actually what people mean when they talk about a slippery slope is they want a bow on the package right. that can no longer be looked at or modified. Now it can only be accepted or rejected. Mm. And as long as we keep it that simple, then it's easier to, it, it reinforces the binary, right? Because now when you've just created a binary of the binary, you either accept it or reject it. <laughs> and, and so it, it scaffolds on itself, this capacity to control an environment and the slippery slope isn't a slope down into hell, mm -hmm. but it's a slope towards discontrol mm -hmm. or integrated conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, which is hard for the binary binary to, to do. So it feels like it's a slippery slope into hell. Yeah. Um, even if it's really just acknowledging multilingualism as a valid expression of reality. So one thing I do want to add, because if it was just what you and I have talked about so far, I don't think that it's prob that problematic. I really don't. Most people, and I've been doing this, you know, for more than a decade now, most people can hang with you this far in the conversation. I am coming to understand just more and more. It's this next part that gets really complicated. Let's go right. there. So I'll give you two examples of where it gets complicated. So in the surplus of meaning, Ricoeur will say, that uh, a text, not only does it mean all these things. So he says any text, and by that he means like communion can be a text, right? A symbol, anything. It means all that it can mean. Mm. But that doesn't mean it can mean anything. Mm. It doesn't mean what it can't mean. And that's where people are like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. <laughs> so like 
this is fun for me to I, I try and pastor people through stuff like this. And it really happens for me in, in community. This is like a communal discernment that's needed because let's say you read a section of the scriptures and you have nine people in the room, you're going to come up with like 10 or 12 ways of interpreting it. Well, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. And it can mean probably most of those things. Some people can, right. will compare it to like, a Mad Max movie or some book they've read or a fairy tale or a play, right? Or another piece of scripture that they've read, or maybe a scripture from a different religion. And it can mean all of those things. But then once in a while, somebody will try and make it say something that you think, I don't think that the original author would agree with that. I don't think that that's what it was intended to do. That seems like you're forcing your own agenda on that and you're not you're not letting the text speak anymore. You're imposing your own thing on it. So that's the tricky part is that people like that a text can mean all that it can mean. And they go, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. And then you say, but it it can't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. what it can't mean. And- so so let, let, let's take something neutral like you're talking about rain right? With farmers and sailors. Rain can mean lots of things to lots of different people, but there are some things that rain can't mean, right? Like rain can't mean dry surface. Rain can't mean clear skies. There's just some things that rain can't mean. Is that, is that kind of where you're going with it? That there's just some very, so, so it's, it's a little bit interesting because on the one hand we're saying, no, we need to open the doors to lots of different thoughts. And then at the same time we're saying, but there's still some parameter of reality that this idea exists within. And here's where the conservative mind buckles, which is when they hear the final clause, which is that it can't mean what it can't mean, they usually will go, aha, therefore, I don't need to go on this journey at all because we're just going to end up where I started out And so it turns out I don't need to consider those other perspectives at all because it can't mean what it can't mean. It it can only mean what I already think it means. I'm just going to stay here. Boom. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, so let's, let's just walk that thought out a little bit though. and, And let's just make it a little bit more clear. Okay. So walk us through, let's say we're looking at W is the word of God. And someone's starting from a fundamentalist sola scriptura kind of perspective, and they go on this journey of discovery. And at the end of multiple years, they land back on sola scriptura, right? Because that's the permission of the journey is that you actually can land anywhere. You can go prima scriptura. You can go farther than that. You can go, you can walk away from faith altogether. Like there's, there's not the boundary put on the journey. You're just on the journey. Okay. So let's say that some of the participants of that journey land back in a fundamentalist view of Sola Scriptura. So tell us, Bo, why was it still a good choice for them to go on the journey anyway? Uh, this is actually such a fun way to approach this. I, I, uh, I love when somebody comes up with a creative way, uh, you know, to sort of poke around and investigate something. So here's why that is, and, and, why I think people are very nervous about it, but here's what happens. So you're going to go back to the original reformers who didn't speak English, right? Or maybe they did if you're, if you're an Anglican, but usually if you're in German or Swiss or right, 
you're going to so the first thing is you're going to run into a translation and you might find out that uh, maybe in the original language whatever it, whatever it is you can do greek or hebrew if you're in the scriptures or whatever that there's going to be a slightly different understanding than what you have so like we talked about descartes earlier Rene descartes mm -hmm. so it often gets quoted i think therefore i am but actually a better translation is i doubt therefore i am and you're like, well, hold on, that's not that's not exactly the same thing, right? So I that's not quite as empowering on a poster in a workplace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. So the same with the uh, sola scriptura. So you find out right. a there's a translation problem. B, you're gonna find out that people like Luther and Calvin didn't mean in the in the, their century what you mean in your century. So it turns out that they're, even if you're using the same phrase, so they didn't mean sola scriptura in the anti-science way that you may have come to understand it. And what they mean by sola scriptura is not what you mean by it, but more like what John Wesley called prima scriptura, which is scripture first, but not scripture alone. And you're going to find out that even though you say the phrase sola scriptura, that because of historic drift, you're not standing on the rock you think you're standing on. You're actually standing on a rock next to that rock. <laughs> it used to be over that rock, but it just drifted a little bit. And you actually hold a position called prima scriptura, which is scripture first. Mm -hmm. but then you don't do no one does no one does no, one, no one no and one. once you figure that out you'll go wait all right hold on so this means something different than i thought it did the reformers used it different than we use it today and actually my current position is actually better articulated with this other thing other, yeah <laughs> so yeah. that's yep. all very helpful but the other thing it does is that it causes you to not be so defensive or mm. to have your hackles up mm -hmm. or maybe to get overconfident and uh, drop the humility because you have, you know, what mm -hmm. Pete Enns calls the sin of certainty. And mm -hmm. when we are, I mean, the thing, here's the problem with faith is what we really want is certainty and what we what but what we got is faith and we're we're perpetually unsatisfied with it and right, right. Yeah. we keep trying to make it into something it isn't yeah which which you know walter bergman i love he talks about it and talks about it in the context of empire that certainty is one of the pillars of empire that lures us into its complicity and that actually faith is this kind of call outside of certainty yeah yeah so to finish up the word of god thing so yeah. once you open the door to prima scriptura and you think, oh, okay, mm -hmm. hold on. If that describes better the position I hold, then maybe I should say uh, prima scriptura, scripture first. Mm. <laughs> and then what, what you don't know is just that subtle unseating of just shifting your weight a little bit opens the door to a whole bunch of other things, which is that you go, somebody who knows, you know, about this will go, 
oh, I really like that. You know what my favorite thing about Prima Scriptura is? Is that the sequence of what comes next is you have scripture, then the tradition, then uh, experience, and then reason, right? It's confirmed by reason. Um, and that's called the Westernian quadrilateral. And then you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. I hadn't really thought if, if it's scripture first, I haven't thought about what comes next. What's next? What else there is besides scripture? And all of a sudden you're on a journey and you didn't even mean to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then let's say you even go through all of that, right? So you, you're aware that the words you use aren't the same words that the, the people you follow would have used. They don't mean the same things. But let's say you get through all that and you say, you know, you know what? I actually do want to take this really hard line, uh-huh. scripture yeah. only anti-science approach. But at that point, you're doing it consciously. Yep. Right. And, and to me, that makes such a big, because then, like you said, so, and like you're talking about earlier, calcifying mm-hmm. theology, when you don't think it needs to be modified, my experience with that has been that it actually becomes really brittle. Mm-hmm. And that's their defensiveness. I see in people, that's the over arrogance I see in myself. Right. And as part of that journey and coming out of it. Um, but so even if you do that whole loop and you land up right in the back, same spot, you've rubberized what was once calcified. Mm-hmm. You, and because you've become conscious of it. So even if you and I might completely disagree with someone going back to that position, having all of this information, they are at least doing so with consciousness, mm-hmm. which really is one of the tenets of religious participation and spiritual discovery, um, being able to be conscious and present in the world mm-hmm. and 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 the divinity of the yeah. world. Um whatever name you give to that. And, and so, and so it's interesting then that one of the effects of this kind of calcified theology has been unconsciousness Mm -hmm. and that what you're doing isn't trying to create a slippery slope into the pits of hell. You're trying to create a pathway into consciousness. Mm -hmm. So even if your participants land somewhere you don't agree with, they're at least doing so consciously. Yes. And I usually end up affirming whatever that is as, like a valid right experience uh, expression or experience of their journey. And I think that weirds people out that I begin, sometimes I actually start my sermons by saying, we're not all going to agree mm. uh, in 15 minutes. We're, I don't expect that we're all going to agree. So I, I just want to tell you, uh, I would be nervous if everyone in this place agrees with what I'm about to say then that would mean we're part of a cult. I, I expect you to disagree with me. And people will say, I want to go to a church where I agree with everything the pastor says. And I say, well, that's a different church, right? Because we're, we're conversational community. And if we all agree, that means we're not thinking. Hmm. So I, I know in COVID, we haven't been going to cocktail parties or backyard barbecues, but we should be coming out of it soon. And so I want to give your listeners a gift, Let's do it. Something they can talk about at cocktail parties and family gatherings and backyard barbecues that will impress the hell out of everyone. Here it is. It's the phrase, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Oh, okay. Say it one more time, then unpack it. The fallacy of misplaced concreteness. All right. If you Google it, fun stuff will come up. But (laughs) basically, it is making firm or solid or concrete 
uh, something that is not. And the only problem with it is that when you think something will hold the weight that you want to place on it, the load, mm-hmm. the strain, mm-hmm. uh, and you and you do so, it'll crumble. There's no, in yeah. the end, there's no there there. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness is a gift because mm-hmm. you realize that part of the reason that so many of us uh, struggle with disappointment or discouragement or depression, even despair, right? The reason so many of our religious organizations and institutions break down and there's the strife that there is just relationally, whether you're religious or not, is because of this fallacy of misplaced concreteness. We make an assumption or we imagine something being able to hold the weight of the hope we place in it or Hmm. the investment Hmm. that we make. And ultimately it can't sustain that. It can't hold that. And, and when that breaks or crumbles or pulls apart, we're left to pick up the pieces. And, um, you know, a study just came out that this is the first time in, I think, recent American history where less than 50% of the population, right? We've dropped below 50%. And you have to think that part of that is just institutional failure, right? It's Mm -hmm. misplaced concreteness. We thought that that thing, that structure, that system or the institution could carry the weight of the morals or the ethics or the gospel or whatever it is we thought it housed. Mm-hmm. And it, that trust was misplaced. Mm-hmm. And the level of disappointment and discouragement is an epidemic now. Yeah. And um, there's some of us who are still trying to stick it out and um, maybe patch up the thing. And this is where reformed thought comes in. By the way, religious people are the worst at using our E words. The, year, <laughs> so the year I was a professor, I had the opportunity to visit lots of different uh, uh, sanctuaries, entryways, lobbies, facilities, uh, headquarters. And I would always look at the literature. It mm. was shocking that almost <laughs> all of it, Christian and non-Christian, that institutions think in our e-words so we reimagine we reframe we reform we right it's all re but there's a subtle thing that's happening there which is basically saying what we had was the thing and if we could just get back there if we could just make the church great again then we'd have something and unfortunately i am allergic to our e-words there you yeah. go. It is, it is not the answer. Backwards is not can't, the path to healing. But, it, yeah, yeah. but it's not It's not for the reason people think. We don't want to disparage the past. I mean, it's the path that brought right. us here. Absolutely. It's just that the questions that are being asked now, um, those, are, those questions have different and sometimes better answers. Yep. It's just a compatibility issue. It's, you don't yeah. want to judge or, or disparage the past all the time. 
It's that the questions have changed and the answers, the the answers that are possible are actually more appropriate. I'm not saying better. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying more appropriate answers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my experience has been people who uh, run to the path for safety. Don't do it for the purpose of integration. Um, Although the path gives us the option to integrate, it's often to actually isolate. Um, And that, and and so the past is absolutely a gift and critical and so important um when we use it as a tool to to deepen the texture of our lives instead of isolating our position on life yeah that's so good you know what what i do that has i've started to do that really seems to be helping people is whenever i'm given an re word I bracket the RE, I put brackets around it. Mm. And then I sort of use that as a variable and I pull it off. I pluck it right off the word and I see what mm. other prefix you can plug in there, right? And so with- Like informed or unformed. <laughs> so what I've-, what I've What are you doing? Yeah, so what I've done is when people talk about reform, I'll say, let's stop. When you say reform, here's three things that it inspires in me that I'd like to put our energy into. I want to talk about how our faith tradition forms us, informs us, and transforms the world. Yeah. If that's what you mean by reform, I'm in. Right. But if you don't mean that and you mean something else, you're going to have to sell me on it. Because what I'm interested is in being formed by the faith of our forefathers and mothers. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in being informed about the actual challenge we're up against. And I'm interested in transforming this moment of need that we live in, where the world is desperately asking some some consequential questions. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but if you're interested in reclaiming some former glory, I'm, I'm, I got better things to do with yeah. my energy. Sure. You know, and then by, by bracketing the RE saying, are, let's do the form. Let's take the form out of reform mm-hmm. and say, are there better th- forms that we mm-hmm. can engage in that bear more fruit? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because that, and that's really the goal of it all. Yeah. Okay. So, one of the things I think it might have even been in your very first episode of Piecing It All Together with Randy Woodley, which Randy's an amazing human being. So, this is getting back into your story. Okay. This is, and, and, and you, you're, you have permission to say, I'm not, I don't even believe that anymore. And let's, let's move on. All right. Okay. But this, this is actually was really helpful in my journey because I, I listened to this episode maybe seven months after getting kicked out of full-time ministry um, because I, didn't, I wasn't dogmatic enough to fit into the mold anymore. So I was asked to leave. And so I was kind of floundering in my faith, found piecing it all together. It was fantastic. And I remember I was stacking firewood in July of 2018, getting ready for winter, having just moved to the farm, yeah. surrounded by the trees. And you're on the podcast with Randy and you start talking about your time in Los Angeles. And you say that people who talk about Los Angeles never actually talk about Los Angeles, the soil. And that statement has stuck with me this whole time and has reverberated and, and, and done a lot of good work in my life. So 
How did you get to a place where you could say that? Mm-hmm. And where are you now with that relationship to the earth? Oh, goodness. This is such a, such a wonderful thing to talk about. Especially in the spring, as we sort of emerge from our uh, heated uh, <laughs> houses and we start interacting with the soil again. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories. When I was in seminary and I wrote my big paper at the end, I needed, uh, Randy was my, was my advisor and I needed another reader. And so I asked Richard Twist, who has since gone on to his next life. But uh, at the time, I was quite proud of this thing where I wrote, it was, it, the fancy title is Contextual Theology. That's the fancy title. Mm-hmm. What it means is that uh, depending on where you are, geographically and you know whatever the landscape looks like and the the natural world around you um things change and so the way that you think about things and approach things right so so place matters that's the bottom line tagline and um i had been a pastor in this place called saratoga springs new york and we loved the springs i would actually drink from the springs because they had you know life-giving powers right in, in it went, legit springs of water coming out of the side of the mountain. Uh, yeah, bubbling up out of the earth yeah. and there's natural awesome. minerals and stuff and some are hot and some are cold yeah. and some are clear water mm. and some are quite uh, uh, pungent. Hmm. So uh, we took this on as like a spiritual theme for our church and it became the springs, right? Uh, it was one of those powerful things I've ever been a part of and I just loved it mm. so much. And I ended up using it as an introduction in my big paper I wrote uh, to sort of just familiarize people with just that, that where you are on the planet matters. And so this went all the way back, actually, the what is now called Saratoga Springs, by the native population there, when the Europeans first arrived, it was called Ten Springs. Hmm. And uh, it was a safe zone, even amongst native tribes, that it's where you took the wounded to soak in the baths hmm. and heal and rent. So it has this long, long uh, uh, history and, and, and tradition. And so Richard asks me, so, you know, you preached about it and it became the theme and blah, blah, blah. Did you ever take people to the Springs as part of a religious practice or ceremony? Hmm. It was the first time I'd ever thought of it. And I said, well, no, I mean, when people needed healing, like we would just pray for them at church, like with this warehouse steel framed church. We would. My least favorite architectural choice in church. Yeah, but it's better for PowerPoint projectors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Block out all natural light. <laughs> um, so, no, we just prayed for them at church, but we did see lots of healings. That was the amazing part. Hmm. And he said, so, you, so it was just a metaphor to you. It was just a word mm. picture. Mm. And I was so humbled and embarrassed and horrified that just because I don't have indigenous wisdom, and at that point, I didn't even have indigenous relationships, for somebody to say, if somebody's sick, take them to the spring. It's not a word mm. picture. It's an actual yeah. place. So... Yeah take them to the spring and either have them drink the water or soak in the water and pray for them. And the spirit will make them well. Right. 
Hmm. But I never connected the metaphor, the word picture, the imagery with the hmm. actual place. So my, my ideas up in my brain never got down into my feet on the land. I never actually connected the concept and the idea with the feet on the ground practice. And so that was 2010 when Richard and I had that conversation. So from there, so I graduate from seminary and I go on to my PhD and now I'm down in Los Angeles. And that problem from Saratoga, New York. So that was in 2006, seven. Then this conversation with Richard 2010, now I'm down in LA and from 2010 to 2016, I see that thing that Richard was talking about, but for an entire city hmm. because, and not everybody, I'm, I'm not everybody. I just mean, you know, for what people mean when they say LA and for most of the people I was interacting with, people have moved there to pursue a dream or become a star or be in the industry or whatever it is for opportunity. I loved the energy of LA so much, but I was haunted by Richard's question. Hmm. And I kept thinking if somebody needed, if somebody was sick and we wanted to pray for them as a community, where would we even take them? Like, would we have to go up to Palm Springs? Hmm. Like, and it's just because that question haunted me, I just started noticing that when people talked about LA, they never meant the hills or the stream, right? They didn't mean the sand. They meant the human culture that sat on top of LA. Hmm. So they were always five and a half feet above LA. Hmm. They meant the human civilization above the soil. I never heard anyone talk about the ground, the earth, the Hmm. land. And it haunted me. And once I saw that, I realized that, you know, every Walmart in America is the same. It doesn't matter what piece of land it sits on. It's not like if it's in a hilly place or a wet place or a dry place that they modify or contextualize in some way, right? They import and impose the structure and place it on the land. Mm. But that's what Christianity is. Christianity. Yeah, I was gonna say that, that that sounds like the embodiment of systematic theology. American, yes, American <laughs> capitalism <yeah>. flesh. <laughs> yeah. And American Christianity in American spirituality. It's not overstating it to say it's just it's just a McDonald's or a Walmart. It's Mick religion, right? Because mm-hmm. you when you like if you go to a McDonald's, there it's the the, the menu is standardized, right? It's a franchise. And yep. so you never go into a McDonald's and sit down and then the the waiter comes to you and says our chef has been inspired by this herb that he found on the walk in today and so today your hamburger is going to be seasoned with rosemary or you know it's like no it's standardized and it's all 
pre-produced and rehearsed and mm-hmm. it's that's just how right that's how this works that's how the church works <laughs> when whole cities mm. and religions and denominations and mm. even seminaries like if seminary education is standardized so that it can meet mm. a certain credentialing or let's say bible college right but when that uniqueness is sapped out, there's there's something really vital lost. It's like an art mm-hmm. reproduction, right? Um, mm-hmm. People who do critical theory, they'll talk about art reproduction. And there's something different about a poster you can buy of a, of a Monet painting mm-hmm. versus the actual Monet painting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And religion and spirituality is the same way. So... When we don't recognize that the actual soil, the actual rain, the actual wind, the actual sunshine matter, then we're doing some sort of fabricated, reproduced um, uh, Xerox of a Xerox that lacks the authenticity of whatever it is that thing that makes life so good, the verb and the vibe, right? Yeah. So we'll talk about yeah. revive, but we never talk about vibe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So so now you're up in Portland though. So what does it look like now? How have you carried that thought forward into embodiment in Portland? There's two things I'm trying to do. Um I've really gotten into biking hmm. in the past couple of years. Whenever I pass a river or a stream, I stop and give thanks because I realize this is a river place. These are a river people whose land hmm. we're on. Their stories are river stories, salmon stories. Hmm. Um and the rivers. So then I was reading the Psalms, you know, just as you do. And it turns out that the Psalms are very aware that rivers give life. Multiple times in the Psalms, the psalmist will say, you know, this river is a blessing from God, or it is the life of God, you know, poured out, or the river brings life to the city. And you know, like the ancients knew something about like rivers matter waterways tell you something i'm not picking on la because i really love my friends in la but let's be honest that water situation <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it's it's a it's a metaphor right for something yeah uh the colorado yeah. river and just what's happening in, with la and mm. anyway yeah. it's all of california the 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 water wars are a real picture of a much bigger uh, problem but so that's one thing is just acknowledging that the rivers and the trees and the wind here uh, make this place really unique and so to give thanks and to appreciate and a partner with them instead of you know there's so there's so much um construction especially real estate here where they just push all of the topsoil and the trees aside mm. to start oh. with a blank slate, oh. but then try and 
import it in at the end and sort of retrofit it so that it has the appearance of something natural. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's something going on there. There's there. Yeah. Well, and, and it gets back to, we're talking about consistency, but then it's also, you know, expediency, right. Then that's consistency and expediency are, are in cahoots together um, to, to provide consumers with cheap products to consume, including our homes and our lifestyles. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's more expedient and we can get a more consistent house if we just bulldoze it down to bedrock and go up from Mm -hmm. there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't actually have to think about where we're building that house if we're down to bedrock. Right. And there's all sorts of dumb things like in these subdivisions where they'll create water runoff spots, right? Because they're going to pave over so much of the land that you can't, it doesn't penetrate into the soil. And so you have to create water runoff. Like there's so many things, but here's, here's the thing. I'm not like uh, some, some eco uh, activist. I'm just saying it tells us about our mentality and our spirituality and we would be fools not to A, account for it and B, attend to it. I'm not even like, I'm not even trying to say like, oh, you know, we should burn down all these subdivisions. I'm just saying <laughs> there is a suburban spirituality that if you're not aware of it and don't attend to it, it is impacting and affecting you in ways you, you can't explain the reason that your formula of your life doesn't make sense is that you haven't accounted for all of the variables. There are things in your equation that you're turning a blind eye to and are impacting you. And you wonder why the equation is never satisfied. That's so good. So good. Hey, this, Absolutely. The second thing I do in Portland is I try and embrace the seasons. Mm. So I noticed that my spirituality in LA is very different than my spirituality in Portland, Oregon, and which is different than when I was in upstate New York. Um, so one of the things I've started doing is when I look at the forecast and, you know, it, it rains quite a few days here in Oregon, but we usually get a break. You'll get three or four days of rain and then you'll get a break is trying to schedule all my zooms and appointments and various things so that when I have a sunny afternoon, I can get outside. So instead of my week being imposed or being the given, I should say, and then the weather being the variable, I've tried to make the weather the given and what I, how I interact with it, the variable. So to try and make whatever's happening in this part of the world, in my place, um, to, to actually engage and interact with it so that I can be outside when it's sunny or dry. And, um, it has changed my spirituality. I mean, I just, Hmm. you can do different things and go different places, which means you have different thoughts and, Mm-hmm. your day looks different. And there's this place down by the river called uh, the Bishop's Cove. Close. No, the Bishop's Close. I'm not Anglican, hmm. so I don't have that vocabulary. But um, it's just this beautiful place that's open to the public certain days of the week. And, you know, 
when I get the opportunity, I love to go down there and walk. And now that I've been doing that for two years, I can't believe how much it changes from winter to spring to summer to fall. And by going there four or five times a year, I, you know, you get to engage different smells with the flowers and insects and colors of green. I mean, there's like 90 colors of green in that hmm. one place. Hmm. And uh, wow. the water levels change and there's all sorts of stuff going on. The type of birds that are sitting in the trees and yeah. So it's just prioritizing by saying that uh, place is important and that, and that it's a gift. And so mm -hmm. trying to engage that as a gift, um, making it the higher priority and my schedule, the lower priority for mm -hmm. me, there's a spirituality there. There is there. And, and for me, it circles back to what we were talking about way early on. We're talking about surplus of meaning mm -hmm. and we're talking about, um, what you know just this idea of consciousness like everything i'm hearing you say you've gone from being participating in a place that was really unconscious mm. of the placeness to a, a much higher level of consciousness around where you are you can call that attention you can call it, call it presence um, you can call it awareness but you're now conscious of the fact that there are birds in the trees and that you know i, I remember i used to visit this farm because i grew up here oh. i'm you know my parents still live here on the property and I left for 18 years and I would come back and, you know, I'd, I'd be in the middle of my career, right? Whatever it was, I'd be, cause I had several different, I'd be in, I'd be in the middle of my career and I would come and I would just see the trees for eight hours on one day. And then I'd leave and I would forget what they looked like, what season they were in, whatever. And then I'd come back and they would be totally different. And I would be, have no awareness of any of that transition or mm. change or participation. Right. Well now living here, um, I'm, I'm now becoming conscious of the trees mm. again, and I'm paying attention to all these little things that I never would have thought I'd pay attention to. I'm looking at the way that just the slight color changes on the bark or the way that, you know, what day was, when did the sun set and what temperature was it? And did I see a little bud push? And, you know, I'm just, there's just so much nuance. I'm noticing all the types of birds and hearing their sounds now that I'm, I'm able to pick out, I'm not good at birding. But that's when I'm listening to the sounds and I'm beginning to hear more and more unique bird sounds and notice different things. And, and like the journey of a spiritual understanding that brings us into consciousness and it can feel risky, it can feel like a slippery slope down into hell, but it really it's, a, it's just an invitation into consciousness and awareness. For me, that's what being tied to this earth yeah. and the soil under my feet, that's what the gift is. It's a gift of waking up into a fuller sense of self, a fuller awareness of God and his world, a fuller sense of experience of being able to actually participate in how beautiful mm. a limited place is. And that was really hard for me, that there was actually good, expansive, mm. ever unfolding beauty in a very limited place, mm. which then I translate to myself. Now I have a spiritual lesson from that, mm. that there's good things in a very limited person. Oh, wow. Can I tell you my favorite tree story? Let's do it. I love tree stories. So I had the opportunity to teach a seminary course in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. Hmm. And uh, I was getting a tour of the places we were driving in. And um, the guy giving me the tour um, 
was telling me a story about during the Soviet days, how this town was uh, a medical center and that all, from all over the Soviet Union, from the farthest reaches of Russia and all the communist countries, they would send their, their sickest people and their most chronically ill people to this town um, because there was something, especially for a lung and a respiratory mm. illnesses, because this place of uh, people, the air was different and, and people were healed or restored. And, um, and it turns out that scientists have studied that, this he was telling me recently, and it's because of the unique way that, uh, you know, the pollens of the different trees interact and it changes actually the ions in the air. And there's something about the unique humidity because of this river, because there's rocks in the river and it stirs up the water that the, it's somehow, um, I don't know, it releases like a different, right? Diffuses the water particles in the humidity of a different way and blah, blah. So he's telling me like scientifically they're finding like the, the quality of this air is better because of the unique trees that grow there because of the water. And I say to him, cause there's this worship song that I know that quotes revelation 22. And I said to him, Oh yeah. The, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Hmm. He says, what's, what's that mean? I said, you know, it's in the Bible in Revelation 22. It says the, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And he just stared at me. And I was like, I mean, that could literally be like this place. I mean, literally, I'm not a literalist, but Lit right. literally yeah. the leaves of these trees are for the healing of the nations. Hmm. And the Soviet right and the communists they used to send people here and now your seminary is here and mm. all of those former soviet republics are now sending their young people here to train for ministry literally the <laughs> leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations that's amazing it's my favorite tree story <laughs> that's awesome that's amazing. Well, the, the the third thing I wanted to get into, which we don't have to, the third thing I want to get into is critical race theory because it's super interesting. Oh, so but we're just going to start. <laughs> Wait, at the we're, tail end, we're going to start. <laughs> we, we don't have to get there. I just, I want to get there at some point. Yeah, yeah. It would be fun yep. to, but I, I've just really, I mean, we've been going for an hour and 15 right. minutes. So um, th this has been just a ton of fun for Good. me. Um, you might be getting an email from me asking to do this again, because I do want to get into really what I, I want to get into Chris, critical race theory, just because so many conservatives lose their mind over it. Yeah. And I want to explore the question. Um, they should. Okay. Yeah. And, and so we can explore that and then we can explore, well, okay. If we listen to this, is there, is there a path? Um, where, where this can be okay and good. And, and, and I know you have all the answers to that because I know you talk about it a lot. Uh, well, okay. I, I, <laughs> I don't have, I actually don't have any answers. I'm just a little more practiced at articulating the challenges than some people. There you it go. It sounds like Perfect. answers to the uninitiated, but I actually don't have many answers. I'm just better practiced and articulating the problem 
Perfect. Perfect. I, well, let me, so let me just tell you uh, what I'm finding. Okay. Can I tell you what I'm finding? Yeah, totally. Uh, when I first got introduced to critical race theory, um, and, and, and since then I have been more silent because this is how the academy works. I, I actually uh, am housed in a neighborhood called critical whiteness studies. Uh, I don't get to do full blown critical race theory just because of my social location. And that's fine. I mean, that's how the Academy works. But from my place of critical whiteness studies, um, I have been saying for like seven years to anyone who will listen to me that critical race theory, and this is so before George Floyd murder and black lives matter protests of 2019 to 20, No one, I couldn't get anyone to talk to me about critical race theory. It was like Mm -hmm. this niche academic thing that, that I was fascinated with and I couldn't get people really to engage with it at all because it's so abstract and Mm -hmm. technical. So then I'm, you know, I'm writing my dissertation on this thing, partially it's rooted in it. And all of a sudden I'm seeing it not just on Facebook, but on the evening news. And I'm like, Hmm. holy, what is happening that my little academic niche is now like in the popular culture, it's in the spotlight. I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe it. And immediately I started just saying to my closest friends and colleagues, you know, this isn't going to go well. Like I had Hmm. the sneaking suspicion. This is not, going to mainstream it doesn't translate to popular culture very well Mm. but i was like it was just like a a haunting a sneaking suspicion in the back of my mind like i don't know so i started saying that my phrase that i said over and over and over again was you know this isn't for everybody critical race theory isn't for everybody Mm. i don't think everyone should do critical race theory Well, the problem is, is that as things get popularized and come out into the the pop culture, they, it's sometimes or often presented as if you're not down with this, if you don't do this, if you don't subscribe to this, you're a loser or you're bad or you're the problem or right? So it's an all or nothing. Uh, you're on board with this or you know, you don't get it and you're on the other team. So as I've watched this thing unfold and I've been still trying to, you know, work on um, my academic stuff, I am just both shocked and perplexed at how inflamed and agitated and adversarial this thing has gotten Hmm. Uh, my inbox is full of amazing anonymous emails people saying i can't i don't want to talk to anybody else about this but you seem like somebody i could just you know one my question i can just i could ask you my questions so yeah i here's the thing it's um to use a computer analogy it's a different operating system, right? Like it's not compatible. If you have a Windows machine, it's not just that you can download a Mac program and it works fine, right? It's, it's built different. Or let's use a farming analogy. Yeah. 
You can't just take corn out of Iowa and plant it in New Mexico. It's just, so it's not, it doesn't translate. It's not universal. It's not, um, it it has a very specific application. Hmm. It's like really specific kind of orchestra music. There's, you need Hmm. not just specific instruments to play it, but you need an actual skill and appreciation. It's not, it's not for popular consumption. Hmm. So the way that it's being put forward by some, and I, you know, look, they might be right. I'm very aware that I might be wrong on this, but from where I stand, which is the only place I can see from, Mm. uh, I get why this is a problem right now. (laughs) And this is, keep in mind, this is by somebody who employs critical race theory and loves it. Right. Literally written papers on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge proponent of it. But I don't think it belongs on like K95 radio. (laughs) (laughs) It it sounds like we need to have another conversation, another hour-long conversation just unpacking why. So we'll land the plane right there because I I, I do want to hear why and I want to give it the space to hear why. So next time we'll do that. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you. You ask, uh, you ask questions in a unique way, a very creative, open-ended way that mm, I, I gotta you. say, you, uh, drew some things out of me. I haven't talked about in honestly 10 years. This was awesome. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. This has been such a fun conversation, and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group of Dust and Divinity podcast community and engage with us on Instagram at of dust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.